Good evening. It's wonderful to have you all here tonight. Well, the film studios at Acellus have been hard at work churning out new courses and updates. One of the advanced placement courses that's been getting updates is our AP Drawing course featuring Erica Christ. And when Erica's not busy teaching at DeSoto uh, School District, she uh, also helps run a, uh, um, an instruction for kids and adults uh, during the summer and other times. So it's a pretty, pretty neat program. Uh, this, uh, these updates are still in post-production, but here's a sneak peek of what it looks like. I'm going to share with you the first component of the AP Drawing Portfolio, which is the Sustained Investigation. What's a Sustained Investigation and its purpose? It's an opportunity for you to make and present drawings and artworks based on an in-depth investigation of materials, processes, and ideas that you do over a period of time so that you'll create throughout this course. So that's going to be a pretty exciting course uh, to check out, and you'll be seeing those updates as they come out. And we're Really grateful to all of our uh, teachers that make Acela so wonderful. So stay tuned for more of those updates. And now it's time to hear from someone whose science is always artful. It's Dr. John with the Technology Spotlight. <laughs> Let's go to Mars. You know, that's what NASA's been working on. They are working on the things that we need. And it turns out that we would need a lot to go to Mars. There are a lot of issues. You need to have enough air. You need to have enough food. You need to have enough power. Well, there's another problem. It's the radiation problem. When you go out in space and leave Earth's magnetic field that protects us, then you get exposed to a lot of radiation. And it's pretty dangerous. At the International Space Station, they're low enough, so they're actually mostly in that protection still. So this is a big challenge that any astronauts going far away to somewhere like Mars will need to overcome. And so we need to make some type of protective shield. You know, when you think of something to protect you from radiation, you might think of concrete or maybe lead, something really big and strong. but that's a lot of weight. If you're going to try to take something like that into space, it's going to be really, really expensive and maybe almost impossible or infeasible. So we need something lighter that still blocks the radiation. Well, some researchers at Stanford and uh, North Carolina universities have an idea. This is something that's really light and will work amazingly well for blocking the radiation. And guess what it is? What's this amazing stuff? It's mold. Oh, yeah, uh, you know what I mean by mold, right? Oh. Well, the story actually started quite a few years ago when researchers went to that nuclear power plant disaster in Chernobyl. And they were looking around at uh, what was still growing there. And in some of those places, the radiation is so strong that it kills almost everything. And when they were looking there, they found a fungus growing. And it was this stuff right here. And it wasn't just surviving the radiation, it was thriving in the radiation. 
and they brought some home and studied it, and their conclusion was that this stuff isn't using light like normal plants, you know, photosynthesis to do a chemical reaction. It's using radiation, gamma rays. And so they sometimes call it, instead of photosynthesis, they call it radiosynthesis. But uh, it's really, really unusual and pretty amazing when you think about it. So they studied it some more, and they found a lot of melanin in it. This is the same pigment that people have in their skin. And it, if you have more melanin, then it will actually make it so you're less susceptible to things like skin cancer from the ultraviolet rays that do get through uh, the Earth's atmosphere. So um, that's something that's protecting us. Well, this fungus has a lot more melanin than we do, and they think that that's part of why it works so well. But when you have an idea like this, where maybe since it can thrive in the radiation and it seems to be consuming it, maybe we could use that to block the radiation. When you have an idea like that, then there are a lot of questions. Well, that's the radiation here. What about the radiation out in space? It's quite a bit different. So to answer those questions, the researchers took some of this fungus and sent it to the International Space Station. Let's take a look at their setup. They made a little Petri dish, that's what you see down on the bottom, and they have some uh, sensors to detect the radiation under the Petri dish. And then they have a camera up above that can take pictures and kind of record the results and see if the fungus is dying or growing or what's happening. And so they sent this up, and it was up there for 30 days. I want to show you some pictures of the first several hours. The first, I think it's like every six hours they took a picture. Up there in figure A, both sides of the Petri dish look almost exactly the same. And then as it progresses, B, then C, then D, you can see one side starts to darken. That side that's darkening is where the fungus is growing. They found that the fungus seemed to grow quite well out in space. And um, it was apparently absorbing that radiation. And their sensors behind the Petri dish measured the difference between the two sides so they could see how much radiation it was blocking. And they found that about 2% of the radiation from space was blocked with only 1.7 millimeters of this fungus. And that doesn't sound like very much, right? 2%? Well, uh, on Mars, for example, if you were to take about eight inches of this stuff, that would be enough shielding to completely protect you to the same level that we're protected here on Earth. Remember, Mars doesn't have a magnetic field, so it gets a lot of radiation. That's pretty amazing. And um, there's one other really cool thing. You can actually grow it in space. So you can take a little teeny box with some spores, right, and then grow your whole radiation shield right there. And so that, just that might make it so it's way better than anything else they can come up with. Well, these are the kind of challenges that we're facing if we're ever going to leave this planet and go somewhere like Mars. Uh, but every step of the way, we're going to have to have some breakthrough technologies or maybe learn something that we didn't know from mold. <laughs> and the moral of the story is <laughs> pay attention because you never know what mold might tell you. <laughs> That's all the tech we have the time for. All right, now it's time for Breakthroughs in Science with Tobias.
So quick question. If you could choose one thing from Superman, what would it be? Now think carefully, okay? Would you want to fly, super strength, red underwear? Um, <laughs> you know, it's your choice, okay? What about the ability to see through things? That's a pretty amazing ability, if you think about it. And tonight we're going to talk about a breakthrough that is able to do just that, is able to see through things. And we're talking about ultrasound imaging. And so what is ultrasound? What is this? Well, it's the ability to be able to see through different materials. Now, I mean, it's not that big of a deal to just see with, with sound, or is it? Uh, and we need to talk about a couple quick little breakthroughs, well, big breakthroughs, but we're going to just touch on them real quick that led up to this. Because the ability to see with sound, that's an interesting thing to think about. In the 1700s, a scientist discovered how bats can see in the dark. And he was researching, do they have like night vision? Can they see? Because they can fly in the dark and they don't hit anything, usually. And they can catch bugs in the dark. And he determined that they used the sounds that they make these little, I'm not going to try and do impressions of them because they would be terrible, but they do these click sounds and other squeaks, and through those sounds, they are able to see in the dark because those sounds go out and they bounce back, and they use that information to steer themselves and fly around, which is a pretty amazing thing that they can do. Well, further on, uh, we get to the Titanic, and when the Titanic sank, um, an, an inventor try to create a system to see with sound, kind of similar to that, where he would use sound on a ship and send it out, and that way maybe we would be able to see icebergs in the dark and be able to steer around them. And th they weren't able to get that technology working, or he wasn't, but eventually they would take that idea and use something much more advanced in submarines, and it would be something that they would be able to see by the sound. Now, how do you see with the sound? I mean, so if I click, oh, something just went. Not, not really. I can't really do that very well. Okay, the sounds that I can make. Well, we have to talk about what is sound. Okay, sound is a wave. It's it's literally, and sometimes they call it a sound wave. Sometimes they call it a pressure wave because we're applying pressure on the material, being air in this case, and that's creating these sound waves. So in a speaker, there's something called a diaphragm, and it vibrates. And as it vibrates, it makes, creates these sound waves that leave the speaker, okay? And different sounds are higher pitched, some are lower pitched. So if we look at these, these frequencies here, we can see the sound waves. And the higher the frequency, you can look up there, you can see a lot more waves. They're a lot closer together. And then we have lower frequency. They're a lot further apart. Which one do you think is the higher pitch? Probably the high frequency. So the higher the note, that's, that was supposed to be high. <laughs> so the higher the note, the higher the frequency. The lower the note, the lower the frequency. So you get real low, you start getting lower, lower frequencies. And it turns out, there's even frequencies that are so low and so high, we can't even hear them. I heard about the guy who can sing the lowest note in the world. I was like, oh boy, oh boy. And he's like, here we go. Uh, uh, uh. I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> it's like, you need a machine. 
to pick up my low notes. That's how low, so. <laughs> Apparently it was the lowest note, okay. Um, there are frequencies so low we can't even hear it, and they're called infrasonic. They're lower than what we can hear. Then there's frequencies that are so high, okay, there's the low frequency. Guess who talks down there? Elephants, okay? They've been having conversations for centuries we didn't even know about, okay? <laughs> they, they, they actually communicate with, with frequencies in the infrasonic, okay? They've been laughing at us all this time, okay? <laughs> but then there's the other side, the high frequency, the really high notes, okay? Beyond what we can hear, okay? Things like bats, things like dolphins, they use these ultrasonic, and those are sound waves where the frequency is so high that we can't even hear it, okay? Dogs can hear it too, okay? It's, it's an incredible thing to think about. It's, it's still there even though we can't hear it. Now, why do we need to know about this? Well, because as they started to research using sound waves to send sound waves out and come back and use that as information of what's out there, they started to notice certain things and characteristics. And they noticed that the higher the frequency, the more straight out the sound waves would go and less spread. So if I jump in the pool, whoosh, it makes a wave that spreads, okay? And if it, that wave hits somebody else, it kind of spreads from there and it will even go around them a little bit. The wave spreads. And same with sound, it spreads. Well, they found that the higher the frequency, the less spread. And so if you're trying to send a sound wave straight out to that object and have it come straight back, hopefully, you want something that's more straight and not gonna spread and cause confusion, okay? In fact, if you get up into the ultrasounds, it's much, much better. So they needed a way to make ultrasound. How do you make an ultrasound machine? You don't get a bat and put it in there, you know? <laughs> um, you need a way to make it. And so we have to talk about another breakthrough, and that was the breakthrough that these two scientists discovered with crystals. Okay, if you hit a crystal real hard, I don't know why they thought of that. <laughs> no. But if, if you apply a pressure to certain kinds of crystals, you can actually generate a current, an electric current. That is amazing, and we're not gonna get into how that works, but just believe me, it does. And it, the reverse works as well, they discovered. If you apply an electric current to certain kinds of crystals, they will vibrate. They will vibrate, and depending on the crystal and such, they'll vibrate at different speed or oscillate at different frequencies. So it's like that speaker vibrating. If you could get that speaker to vibrate fast enough that it's going so fast it's creating an ultrasonic wave, well, that's what they did. They realized they could create a fast enough vibration through oscillating these crystals to create ultrasonic waves. And so they, they, they learned how to do that, and now they've created a way to make ultrasonic sound waves. So they started to use this in things you know, similar to what we're talking about. Now, so if I go out in the dark and I know there's a cliff somewhere out there and I say, hello, hello, okay? If I know the speed of sound and I, I can start to calculate, okay, it took that long. So if it takes this long to travel and it came back, okay, I can start trying to figure out how far away that cliff in the dark is by how long that echo took, right? The same thing, only much faster. Uh, that they use inside of ultrasonic machines, where it, it knows when it puts out a wave and it knows when it comes back, and it calculates the amount of time that wave took to go out and come back, and it tells you how far away something is. Okay, so all that, and now we're gonna talk about Ian Donald, okay? And he's there 
on the left, <laughs> not on the right. Um, but he was really interested in this for medical use. Because think about it, if there's ever a place that would be really handy to be able to see without having to get in there, you know, could you really just take something and hold it right here and see inside of someone's body? If, if they have something wrong, you can just look inside without having to cut them open. That'd be amazing. And he had this idea hit him when one of his patients, husband, uh, said, yeah, I work at a factory and we look for cracks in some of the machinery with uh, this ultrasonic machine. And he asked if he could come see it. And so he went to see it and he realized, what if we used this on people? It's just sound. What if we could somehow see inside of somebody using ultrasonic waves? And so he set out to start figuring out how to do that. And basically, they figured out a way to have this ultrasound machine. And remember, it's creating these waves that are so high frequency that it's up in the ultrasonic level, okay? So here's a little video showing kind of how this works. So it's sending out this ultrasound, and we're looking at a kidney, okay? So it's like it's slicing, the, it's not really slicing, but it's like it's slicing right through this organ and showing us inside of it as if we cut it open. And as these waves come out, if we look at it in actual waves, when they hit other items, they bounce back. And the ultrasonic unit is actually keeping track of when those bounce back compared to when that wave was sent out. And it paints a picture. And it does this so quickly, you can even have it look like video, where it's showing you movement live that's happening. And you know, your first picture was probably you without anything on, okay? <laughs> in this, this ultrasonic form, being able to see even a child, an unborn child with this ultrasound. So a camera that's not looking, it's listening, and it's painting a picture just through those sound waves. Pretty amazing. Um, so all I have to say is look out, Superman, because we're gaining on you, okay? We've got this ultrasound and red underwear, okay? <laughs> so thank you. And now, introducing Roger Billings. What an entrance, huh? Oh my God. <laughs> that was that was pretty amazing, wasn't it? It was. So I'm making a lot of noise. Will you make some noise, please? Uh-huh. I love my entrance. <laughs> I'll uh, pixelate it in. <laughs> could you study that noise to tell what she looks like? <laughs> should be able to do that, huh? Yeah, you should. That's, that That's is neat. really amazing. And, and to think bats have known for so long. Mm -hmm. Pretty neat. I did not know that elephants could hear sounds so low we can't hear them. Maybe that's why they have such big ears. Hear those. Maybe. Might be. Yeah. But it's, <clears throat> it is really interesting stuff. You know, tonight I have something that I really would like to be able to have everybody understand. Something I wanted people to understand for a long time, and I've explained it two or three times, and every time it seems like people almost get it, but not quite. 
And so I have a new desire, a new attack tonight on how to explain it. And it is how do we generate electricity? Mm. You know, you say, well, I mean, just get a generator, turn it on. It's true, <laughs> true. But how do generators really work? And I wanted to, to show everyone how simple it is mm -hmm. so they could kind of get the idea. Okay. okay. I happen to have a stack of magnets, a whole bunch of them. Magnets are neat because if you turn them one way, they won't go together. If you turn them the other way, they snap together, right? Mm -hmm. Magnetic field. So one side is the North Pole, one is the South Pole. Well, suppose that we had a piece of wire, and in that wire, in this case, a piece of copper wire, there are copper atoms. And outside of the nucleus of every copper atom, there are electrons going around. Interesting thing is, electrons are influenced by magnets. If you turn a magnet one way, it'll pull electrons closer. If you turn it the other way, it'll push electrons away. So think about it. In this wire, there's all these copper atoms with all these little electrons. If I took my magnet and pushed it down the wire, I could push electrons down to go through a light bulb or on a motor or something. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So you just push it down the wire. Now, unfortunately, you'd have to have a really, really strong magnet and a very unusual piece of wire and get enough power to do much work. And that's when someone got clever and they said, what if we coil the wire around lots and lots and lots of coils? And that would be like this little coil I have here. Lots of electric coils. And I've hooked this coil, one end of the wire up to this end of the meter, and the other end of the wire up to that meter. So this is a coil of wire, it's hooked up here, and this meter has the capability of measuring small amounts of electricity. So my magnet, the coil, can I generate electricity? What if I could just push electrons down the coil, and what if, as I pushed it down, all of these different rows of the coil were to generate electricity. I need to zoom in real tight here so we can see. Can you see the meter? Mm -hmm. Okay, now watch. Generates Aww. one way and pulls back the other way when I pull out. One way I'm pushing electrons, the other way I'm pulling them back. That's neat. Chunk, 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 chunk. Now, do people understand how generators generate electricity? they push the electrons down the wire and they do it with a magnetic field cutting the, the wires, cutting across the line of wires with a magnetic field. That is neat. Pretty simple. Mm -hmm. um, if you have an electric generator at your house in case the power goes out, the gasoline engine starts up and it turns a generator, it's really a big coil basically in a circle and magnets going around and it's generating continuous electricity and on come the light. I think it's really, really, really neat, interesting. That is very and neat. so many things like this in science are actually very simple, but then we make them more powerful, more fancy, and pretty soon it gets so it looks very complex. But the principles are very, very simple. And I think it's neat to understand them. It is. Okay? With me on that? Uh -huh. So much for generating electricity. Magnetism and electricity are something we're going to talk a lot more about because 
They're really interesting. Yeah. You can learn a lot about our universe, about our planet, world with them. Now I happen to have <clears throat> a flashlight with an attitude. <laughs> and I'm gonna turn on this flashlight. The green thing says here, the light's on. And the light is shooting out this piece of plastic rod. This isn't tubing, it isn't hollow in the middle, it's solid rod. And when light goes inside a piece of glass or plastic rod, it's reflected back and forth, so it stays in the rod. Wonder if you can see the light oh. on the end there. Let me try turn it off. Yeah, it can. And let me turn it back on. You see how it lights up? And if I bend the rod, the light follows it. And it bends all over. Now you say, well, that's pretty neat. I think it's interesting if you coil up a piece of rod made out of glass or out of plastic and put light in one end, it'll go all the way around and come out the other. This table that we're sitting at, we can zoom down just a little bit on it, you'll notice it looks like it has a blue edge. Mm -hmm. And that's because we have lights coming in the middle and the plastic is carrying the lights out all around. Now, we happen to have this table so that we can put any color we want. Actually, we like the Celis Blue, so we'll stay that way. I'm gonna go back to my little flashlight and I'm gonna remove my clear plastic rod and I'm gonna replace it with a very small piece of glass rod, a very, very small thread of glass inside of a plastic sheath. This is what we call fiber optic cable. In the sides of fiber, on the outside is a plastic sheath. So I'm gonna go ahead and stick it into my little light thing here. And lo and behold, can you see what happens at the yeah. end? Yeah. So this is going around now in, in a couple circles and coming out at the other end. This is the secret of how we're sending our program to you tonight. We're picking it up on the cameras, send it over the mixer, it goes down to the server, and the server sends it out of here over a glass fiber. That's neat. And over a single strand of glass, we can send all of this information of who's here tonight, what uh, we're wearing, That's whether amazing. my hair's combed, hers isn't, you know, whatever. <laughs> I'm just saying. And we do that simply by turning the light on and off really fast. And you think, how does that send oh, a picture? I... Well, if you have a picture and you break it down into these little teeny lines, and then you scan across the line and you turn the light on and off, on and off, on and off. If it's dark, it's off. If it's light, it's on. Then pretty soon you're able to send an image. And this is kind of a remarkable thing. In order to be able to send a light a long distance over a piece of fiber, you have to have a pretty powerful piece of light. And if you want to send a lot of data, it's got to be a very special kind of light the one coming out of here is out of a little light bulb and a battery. The light's white, but it's, it's kind of jumbled light. It's different wavelengths and it's not synchronized. If instead of using a flashlight to send the light, if we were to use a laser, then the light would be special. Scientists call it monochromatic and coherent, which means that all of the light waves are the very same frequency and they're right in sync together. 
And that makes it possible to do things like to focus it with lenses, etc. So you see how this works. The way you make that special kind of light beam is with something called a laser. Cool. And I just happen to have a laser. This happens to be a helium neon laser. Up in this end, there is a glass tube inside of which is the gas, helium, like helium balloons, and neon, like a neon sign. When these two particular gases are together, and when you excite them by running a very high voltage through them, or another way to excite them, like on my high school science fair project, I excited them with a ham radio transmitter. So a radio signal <laughs> lit up the tube. When the tube lights up like a fluorescent light, then it starts to give off photons of light. And a laser stands for laser or light amplification by stimulated emission of radiation. Okay? And so in order for this tube to laze, a lot of things have to be done that are just right. Uh, first of all, you have to have a mirror. Could you hold this mirror for me, please? Very good. Yeah. A mirror, something like that. That's a handy mirror. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and then in between the mirror, you put the tube, which is the gas of helium neon. And the tube is, uh, has actually a very low pressure of gas. It's like a vacuum. And then on the other side of the tube, this is the tube here. Okay. On the other side is another mirror. Okay. And the mirrors are very important in a laser. Because as you start to excite the gases in there and, and it starts to get lit up like a neon sign, it starts to give off light, some of the light just goes out the side. And I'm going to show you that here in just a minute. Let's do it. Can you see the That's light cool. lit up there? So the laser is now on. I'm going to turn on and off so you can see how it's lighting up and it's not lighting up. There's a little piece of metal in the middle here that's just reflecting our studio lights. But as it lights up, some of the light comes out the side here, which we can see in the camera. Some happens to go right towards the mirrors. And when light hits one of these mirrors, it's reflected back towards the other mirror. And these mirrors are perfectly aligned, so they're looking right at each other. And when one photon of light comes and hits one mirror perfectly straight and reflects back to the other, as it goes through this tube, it does something amazing and interesting. It goes by other atoms that are in an excited state. In other words, electrons have been pushed out into an excited orbital. They have extra energy and they want to give it up. As this photon of light comes by, it inspires other atoms to decay down to their low energy rate and they give their light off going exactly the same direction at exactly the same frequency, exactly in phase. And that's how we get this uh, coherent radiation. Laser. <laughs> Lasers are very important to our lives. We really couldn't have the internet without them. We just really, there would no, be no way to hook it all up, especially with the kind of performance that we, we expect from the internet. So you've got to have mirrors. Now the mirrors we have here are a special kind of mirror. You know, some of the early mirrors, they just take a piece of glass and they put a silver coating on it and it would be like a mirror. These are much better than that. This particular mirror is called a dielectric mirror. 
What's a dielectric? Well, it's a mirror that you put a coating on. And a coating is put on electro electrochemically, so it's just one layer of, of atoms. And when you put one layer, it becomes reflective. You put on another one, and it's non-reflective. Put a third, an odd number, you keep adding them, it's reflective. And you get mirrors that have like 99% reflectivity. So they're very, very perfect mirrors. They've got to be on the end here. And when the light becomes strong enough, bouncing back and forth in the mirrors, it eventually is able to pierce the mirror and come shooting out, like we have at the end of the laser. And I'm going to need some more help. Okay. Dr. KJ, can you hold the piece of paper? Let's put it about there so you don't, so you're not inconvenienced. So I'm going to turn this on, and look, nothing happened. It's on, but it's not working because there is a safety shutter. It's a little piece of metal that is blocking the output. I'm going to unblock it. Watch on the piece of paper. And there, there it, is, it is, the little dot. Um, if you, when your hand in front of it, the dot kind of gets stuck on my hand. Uh, it's a handy dot. Okay, and if you were close enough, you could see that this light is very interesting and granular. It's a very special kind of light. And that is the light that we send down the fiber optic hair to send our program tonight out to everybody that's watching. Now, this helium neon laser is one that came from the early days of lasers. Nowadays, all of this is reduced into a little teeny diode laser. A little diode laser loaded in a little package plugs into our network equipment. And the kind we use are called mini jibics. I didn't know that's what that was. You didn't know what a mini jibic was? I know was. what a mini jibic was, but I didn't realize it was yeah, a laser. It's actually then. a little laser taking the signal from a computer and converting it to light. And it turns the light on and off at billions of times a second. And so when you get to the other side, if the light's off, it's a zero. If the light's on, it's a one. And that's how we're able to send all this data. And then the computer has to figure out what that all means and put it up on the screen or whatever. That's neat. So is the color um, in there because of the gas? Is yes, the color here is because of the neon. Mm -hmm. If you had a neon light, this is about the color the neon light would be if it had neon in it. Mm -hmm. Now, I, I don't quite know how to explain this because we have neon lights that mm -hmm. don't have any neon. <laughs> and so why do we still call them neon lights? I don't know, because that's the industry. But when you see a neon sign in front of a business, if it's blue, it's not neon, it's another gas. And every gas is a different color. And they make all different colors by choosing the right gases to put in here. And sometimes they'll combine gases to get exactly the color they want. In this case, this is the color for helium neon, mm -hmm. which is actually a little bit more pale than just pure neon. That's really neat. Yeah, it is, it is really amazing. Now, I wanted to introduce this laser a little bit tonight. And later, I would like to take this through a few more steps. Shall we talk about what I have planned? Absolutely. You know, if you're going to do a science fair project, you have to have a plan. You need to have a hypothesis that you think you can do this and that and you're going to have an outcome. But you also have to have a research plan. Mm -hmm. So let me tell you mine. 
my plan is to take this laser and to do something very remarkable with it. Turn it off a minute, and it's, it's a little hard to see in here. I'm going to zoom in as tight as we can. Let me close my aperture here. Uh, okay, so here is the laser, as you can see. But back here, there's an electronic amplifier. This happens to be an audio amplifier or a sound amplifier. And it's connected to the laser so that it can modulate the laser. And what that means is to modify the laser beam by turning it on and off or changing the frequency so that the information, which would be the music, can be encoded into the light beam. So my, my plan, we won't get it all done tonight, but my plan is to figure out a way to hook my cell phone up here and play music through this amplifier, which will then modulate the laser beam, which will then shoot out a light, and the light will be carrying the music. You won't hear it, but you'll see it go by. And then on the other side, it'll hit a sensor, which will turn the light back into electricity, which I will amplify, and then I want to use that electricity to make sound with a speaker we make right here. Oh, how cool. That is fun. Wouldn't it be interesting? Yeah, If good we ideas. make our own speaker, then we should be able to understand how they work. Mm -hmm. And I think that would be kind of fun. Now, high-fidelity speakers like you get in the stereo shop are, are really nice. Some amazing scientists that probably started out doing the science fair and then graduated and became very wealthy designing nice speakers have done all sorts of things to make the sound that comes out of them just amazing. High fidelity, beautiful sound. But we want to go back and figure out how this really works. So I'm thinking we ought to make a speaker not out of fancy stuff from a factory, but just out of ordinary stuff. That'd Wouldn't be that neat. be fun mm -hmm. if we could do that? I think we could. I think so too. What do you think? Would you help us? Yes. Okay, that would be really good. Now, I have to do a little shout out tonight to Mikey, don't I? Yeah, we like Mikey. Mikey and his dad stopped by to see us yesterday. Yeah. Mikey and his dad were doing a cross-country trip, and somehow they just happened to show up here. And uh, Mikey came in. He was being very proper. He had on his nice safety mask, and so did his dad. And uh, he has been with us during Science Live for many weeks. I could tell mm -hmm. by the questions he asked. And uh, he, had, he had a bunch of very, very interesting questions. You know, the first question he asked me was, he said, um, Dr. Billings, have you been able to test Dr. Peugeot's DNA yet to see if she's an alien. <laughs> <laughs> Number one question. <laughs> Very important. <laughs> ah, so he has been He's watching, been hasn't he? Yeah. Those that were, were just um, wondering about this whole, anyway. He thinks we should. She, she does have really amazing <laughs> powers. There's something going on here. And then he asked me if she works in a cage. Yeah. And then I realized he saw office down at the cybersecurity right. tower. Remember I said, that's the, the cage. Well, uh, 
He and his dad drove down by to see the other building too. So they were exploring the whole area and they knew all about these things. But he did have some very interesting questions about science. His father told me that before he started doing a solace, he had some real difficulties at school. Uh, he's one of those special students that learn different than, than most kids. Um, interestingly, very often those are the students that are actually the most brilliant. But they learn the way they learn, and quite often they learn very fast. And so in Acellus, uh, we've done a lot of things to try to let students learn their own way in their own pace, and everybody gets a little different version of the lesson depending on Mm -hmm. uh, how they seem to respond. But his father said he was really struggling when he was in a regular school, and when he came over to Cellus, he just really took off. He says now they just they can't get him to stop. He just study, 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 study. And you know what? Um, I asked Mike what he plans to do, and he told me that he really wants to become a programmer, and I think he will. He loves the STEM course. He wanted to know if Dr. John was here. Yeah. <laughs> and I said, well, actually, um, Dr. John is up by the, the factory where he normally works. He just comes down here on Wednesdays. But up by his uh, laboratory and office, uh, up where we manufacture the networking equipment and a lot of the other things. But he was excited to meet Dr. John. Uh, he talked about Tobias. In fact, we had someone walk through and, and he was pretty sure it was Tobias. Could have been. He does make guest appearances here several times a day, doesn't he? Well, my point about Mikey is, um, is this. Um, having him stop by here uh, scrolls my heart. It's closed my heart because he is a very special young man. And he was excited about science. He was excited about his career. He was excited about learning. And I don't know if there's anybody else out there that's like Mikey. Uh, but I'm guessing that maybe there are. And did you know that's my goal? I want to get kids, students, even parents, and what do they call them? The, the greats. The greats. Mm -hmm. The great-grandparents are the I greats. I learned about greats reading the messages. It says, yeah, yeah, our great. Those are the great-grandparents. Yeah. Those go way back. Yeah. I want to get them all <laughs> excited about education, about science, about doing things that are meaningful in our lives. That would be just wonderful to me. And I'm, I'm pretty excited about science. I just, I think this stuff is so neat. So I can actually generate electricity. Wow. That's amazing. Little old me making electricity. And yet, that's also the science by which drones fly. They have these really good magnets that are made out of rare earth metal alloys that make it possible to make a motor so light and so efficient that we can actually have it light enough to fly in a drone. We couldn't do that without these. In fact, we couldn't do it a few years ago. And to be able to make a drone that fly, you've got to have those amazing batteries that we heard about last week. It's, uh, 
really interesting because every time we make an advancement, a discovery in science, it opens up all of these new opportunities and all these new possibilities. Uh, I just think it's really, really exciting. I had a meeting with uh, a very good engineering friend of mine this week, and this guy is really smart. He's a college professor and has been a dean of the school, etc. but he's in aeronautics. That's the science of designing and building airplanes. And he and I have been friends for quite a while and we've been cooking up some ideas. We'd like to build a really unique aircraft that's powered by hydrogen and that it'd be like a drone, but it's actually something to be big enough you could fly. And you know, I, I was taught by Bill Lear when he was mentoring me that you don't want to get all busied out doing a project that just anybody could do. <laughs> you want to wait and pick a project that comes along where you have an advantage over all the competition. And Bill Lear used to tell me that if you have enough money, like these giant corporations, you can get into any business you want because you don't have to be smart. You just keep paying, paying, paying until you get it. He says, but the smart guys will look for an edge, a competitive edge, and then they will go out and, and do something with that edge. And he says the best kind of an edge is the one that gives you at least a tenfold improvement over anybody else. What if you could have an invention that made your airplane a lot better than everybody else? And you know, sometimes when you're designing an airplane just mentally in your head and you're figuring it out, you've got to know how good it's going to work. Sometimes it's hard to know how good it's going to work because you haven't even built one yet. And that's where science and math and engineering come into play. Because with your engineering, with your science, with your math, you can start making calculations and designs and figure out, is this going to work a lot better than what anyone else is doing? And if you don't have that technology, if you don't have that education and training, then you can only guess. And the thing I've learned is that whenever I guess, I'm almost always wrong. <laughs> I guess that's not a good way to do it. <laughs> But when you start applying science and engineering and math, then you can make informed or educated guess. And then you can do some really amazing things. Well, we have been cooking up this new drone. And um, we kind of decided that maybe we need to build a model. It's getting closer. Oh, how fun. And the drone employs some pioneering technology. Pioneering means I don't think anyone else has it yet, but some pioneering technology that we've been developing in our laboratory that involves hydrogen energy and fuel mm -hmm. cells. And that's part of what really makes it unique. Have you seen a quadcopter? It's a drone that has four fans mm -hmm. and they turn the power of each fan up and down to tilt it, to direct it, to steer it. They're pretty neat. There's a lot of them available now. 
if you haven't had a quadcopter, you probably will soon. But they're easy to fly because the computer kind of keeps them level and you just say go up or down or whatever. If it wasn't for the computer keeping it all stable, they would probably be impossible to fly. They, you'd be trying to mind to flip over and crash. But the computer keeps them all stable and if they start to tilt too much, there is a sensor that picks up that that's happening and it turns down the motor to keep it nice and stable. So um, quadcopters are neat, they can fly, but did you know that just blowing air down through four fans is a very inefficient way to hold an, an aircraft in the air? It takes a lot more energy to hold it up that way than if it was like an airplane with a wing flying around. So if we could make it maybe take off vertically but then fly, it would be able to stay in the air a lot longer and go a lot further. And so this is where we're using our science to figure out the way to really make something unique about it. But what if you were going to invent a flying machine? What would you do that would be different than everybody else that's trying to do it? And you could come up with some probably really different looking designs. Sometimes just because it looks so different makes people interested. But if it's really going to succeed, it's got to be better than the others. It's got to fly higher, faster, further, carry more load, or fly on more fuel than the others. And there's a lot of scientists today trying to figure out how to make drones better. They say that uh, the FAA is now given permission to some of the companies, like Amazon, to be able to deliver packages with drones. And the technology to be able to do that now exists. Just imagine you sitting out on your front porch in the chair and you decide you need some really neat science thing. So you go into Amazon, <laughs> find one, then you sit and wait. And literally, if it's in a warehouse locally, and it has to be within a certain reasonable distance from where you happen to live, there it comes. And you know how the drone works, huh? Yeah. You figure it out. <laughs> well, if anybody can figure out a way to make a, bigger, a better drone, uh, it's going to be worth an awful lot to this world and an awful lot to them. Yep. And the chance that you're actually going to invent a better drone is almost zero unless you learn about the science and the engineering involved in flying machines. If you don't understand how they work in quite a bit of detail, you're not going to be able to tell if you have a better idea or not. And furthermore, you need the math, the math, the math, the math to be able to run the calculations and be able to make the comparisons. Math is um, is such a powerful, powerful tool to do anything in science, but in so many other fields too. And that's why we push it so hard in Cellus is because it's, it's extremely important. If it's hard for you, that's okay. Did you know that a lot of people that became very, very bright are the ones that had a very hard time with math, but they didn't give up? Uh, Edison, excuse me, Mr. Einstein, 
the guy that invented the general theory of relativity, the guy, that, the whole atomic energy thing came through the uh, amazing research of Einstein. But he said, no matter how hard you struggle in math, you do not struggle as hard as I did. Here's a guy that with his math completely turned the whole world of science and physics upside down. And he said when he was learning math, it was so hard for him to get it, so hard for him to understand it. And I've noticed that a lot of people really struggle with the math. Um, I struggled with math. It was hard. And I, as a result, I, I didn't get as far in math as I should have when I was young, and I had to work a lot harder when I got to the university. I really wish that I had done more in my earlier grades. I still did fair, but I didn't do like I could have. And so I kind of wasted that opportunity, and I had to make up for it. But I wasted it because math was very hard for me. What I've learned now is all that means is you've got to work harder. Doesn't mean you're not going to be able to get it. When I got it, I got it. I had to work very, 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 very hard to get it. But I don't forget it. I worked so hard to put it in the gray matter of my mind that I can remember it even to this day in many, many ways. And I can use it in all of the experiments and things I want to do. So if math's, math's hard for you, then strap down and work hard. It's worth it. You'll be glad you did. And it, math is not a course you take. Math is a capability to understand and change the world. And you really ought to understand that you're not going to come up with a better drone if you don't get a foundation in math. And I hope that makes it worthwhile to us all. So how did you do in math? Was it hard for you? It was. It was. A lot of things were very difficult. I was good at the beginning memorizing, and then after that, got to a certain point, it was just hard. I didn't understand it. I remember uh, when Dr. Peget was not a doctor. She was a student, and she was really good at a lot of things. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I told her that, yes, if you want to go into technology, I know that you can. Do you remember what you told me? Well, I don't no, know. No, I told you, no, I can't. <laughs> I do remember. I remember her telling me that I, no, that's I'm, not just, me. I'm just not good at yeah. math. And you know what my answer to that was? She said, I'm just not good at math. And I said, yet. Yeah. Yet. Now, if I had a cellist, I would have been a lot better at you it. You know what? That's true. And I would, too. If I'd had a cellist, whoa, would I be good looking yeah. today. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> At any rate, I just, I hope that there are others like Mikey. He's watching tonight. Is he watching? Yeah, he's Hey, thank Mikey, you thank you yeah. for bringing your dad by to meet us. It was really a lot of fun to meet you. And, yeah. and you, you inspired my whole week. But uh, I hope there are other people like him because he has found out that he can do great things in his life. And... Uh, we even talked about that in a few years, he's not quite old enough yet, but in a few years, maybe he'll come back here to become a student at the International Academy of Science. 
and I pointed out the the hotel next door that we used to be a hotel. <laughs> they had a nice Comfort Inn sign up there. It looked very comfortable, like a place you'd <laughs> want to stay. But that sign came down yeah. when it was acquired by the International Academy of Science for our students. We took it down and put up a new sign that says, a sell us in. Yeah. And we have a lot of people say, uh, is this a hotel? <laughs> no. It's a place for people that are coming to pursue their education. And it's, it's fascinating that um, when you are prepared in these courses that you do in middle school, high school especially, uh, then when you get to the university level, there is so much that you can do. And we have tried to set up our program so that uh, it, it won't matter if you have bags and bags and bags of money because in our college or university program, we don't charge tuition. And we even try to find projects and things you can do to actually earn enough money to pay for your food and your gas and your, and your room. And so when you graduate, with your degree here from the International Academy of Science, you have no student debt. And based on uh, the fact that we learn very practical applied knowledge, our students are in pretty high demand. It's, it's kind of neat. So I hope Mikey will come back, and I invited him, didn't I? You did. Yeah. Um, speaking on that, some of your students are wondering where in Kansas City we are. Where <laughs> we know you're in Kansas City. This Where is from Virginia and New York. Okay. Lots of well, if you want to find <laughs> us on Google Maps, yeah. which is a pretty slick way to go traveling, by the way. <laughs> I've toured the whole world on Google Maps. <laughs> Always wanted to go to Cairo, Egypt. And, you know, I went all around there a few years ago on Google Maps. <laughs> you know, it's, it's neat. But we're on Ambassador Drive right at the Kansas City International Airport. We can look right out that window and see the runway. So we're just a little bit to the east of the airport on Ambassador Drive. And if you want to know exactly where it is, it's 11020 North Ambassador Drive, Kansas City, Missouri, 64153. So Google us, you'll see us there. And if you, uh, if you go down and do the street view, you'll probably see the Acela sign up on top of our building. Mm -hmm. If you do, wave at us. <laughs> we'll wave back. Yeah, I'll wave back right now. That's right. <laughs> Preemptive wave. Okay, we'll have a really wonderful week studying, and uh, let's figure out how we're going to put sound into that light beam. That's neat. We could shoot it. You know, some of these little uh, mini jubics that we sell with our uh, networking equipment can send a light beam for 60 miles, 100 miles, just over a little Goodness. fiber of glass. It's amazing. Pretty neat. And then on the other end, we're going to pull that light out and find the sound that it's carrying and see if we can use it to make sound with a homemade speaker. So That's stay so with us and have a good week. Thank you.
thank you all for joining us this week. We'll see you next week. Have a great night.